You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is producer Lawrence Coletti reporting about the American Bar Association's National Summit on Innovation and Legal Services, which took place at Stanford Law School in Stanford, California. What you're about to hear are two panel interviews covering a series of mini presentations that were part of the Focus on the Client speaking event. I would like to thank Victor Lee, legal affairs writer from the ABA Journal for co-hosting the following panel interviews with me. We now cut to Judge Laura Livingston. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Laura Livingston. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, but I now live in Austin, Texas, where I am a general jurisdiction trial court judge. Great. Mr. West? Yeah, Joe West. I'm the president and CEO of the Minority Corporate Counsel Association. MCCA is a legal advocacy group working in the diversity and inclusion space, corporate legal diversity and inclusion space, based in Washington, D.C. Ms. Acer? My name's Eleanor Acer, and I am the Senior Refugee Protection Director at Human Rights First, and we provide pro bono representation, working in partnership with many of the nation's leading law firms to asylum seekers and unaccompanied children uh, in New York, Washington, and Houston. All right. Judge Livingston, the main body of these uh, series of presentations was called Focus on the Client. Can you give us a 50,000-foot view of what that's about? What's the general theme? Well, if it's okay with you, I'd like to just kind of describe the session a little bit and talk about uh, all of the presentations just in a minute or so, if that's okay. That's great. It was my pleasure to moderate this panel, and it was a fantastic panel uh, this morning and was very well received by the audience. The mini presentations were in the the style of kind of a TED Talk, and so we had roughly eight-minute presentations by uh, some fabulous individuals, beginning with Rebecca Sandifer, who is an associate professor of sociology and law at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's also a faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation, and uh, she spoke to us related to a session that we called Why They're Not Calling Us. It had to do with why clients are not calling lawyers. Uh, And it was pretty fascinating. Uh, The next presentation was related to small business and the law. And we heard from Melvin Williams, who is the general counsel at the United States Small Business Administration. Uh, As you know, the SBA is in the business of loaning uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners money in order to get their business entities off the ground. And so he spoke to us about the unique qualities of representing a government client and trying to advance the government's goal in uh, helping individual citizens uh, have an impactful business in their respective communities around the country. And so it was pretty interesting to hear from him. Ms. Acer, who you're going to hear from in just a minute uh, in in this interview, spoke to us about the legal needs of immigrants. And so I won't say too much more about that since she's going to be able to tell you herself what that was about. It was quite interesting. And then next we heard from the perspective of the legal aid community from Alex Gulata, who is the executive director of Bay Area Legal Aid right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Legal Services Corporation as a whole has been quite innovative and has spurred innovation among civil legal aid providers around the country for a long time now. And Alex spoke with great passion this morning about the things that are going on in his particular program here in the Bay Area, but also generally things happening in the legal services community that spur innovation and that are focused entirely on making the client experience a better experience. Next up, we heard from Judge Charles Harrington, who is uh, a judge from the Arizona Superior Court in Pima County, Arizona. And he talked about something I thought was very interesting about how the courts are really interested in being good 
customer service providers. And we don't often think about the courts as a, provi- of a customer service context, really. And, and he talked about that perspective and gave some very concrete and simple examples of how the courts can change their business practices to be responsive to the needs of the client community, the lawyer community, uh, people who come to the courts that are not represented, and so on. And it was a pretty fascinating uh, and very practical presentation from Judge Harrington. And finally, Joseph West, who you're going to hear from in just a minute, uh, who talked to us about innovations in the general counsel's office. Uh, and uh, what I liked about his presentation, there were several things I liked about it. It was uh, <laughs> funny and engaging uh, and interesting, but also demonstrated the kind of influence that general counsels can have on the legal profession and on the way that lawyers do business and on the way that they can, through their very simple exercise of the power of the purse, can affect change and require innovation with the people that they partner with. And so it was all in all a fabulous presentation. It was my great pleasure to be the moderator. Well, thank you, Your Honor. So, uh, Mr. West, I think I'd like to start with you uh, because uh, your, uh, your presentation is about general counsels. So I'm going to go ahead and mention it one more time. It's called Innovations in the General Counsel's Office. Yeah. So now we've had the 50,000-foot description of your speaking event, but let's get into some of the meat of that discussion. So what were some of the uh, finer points? Well, listening to the judge describe it, I almost wish I had had her actually do the mm-hmm. presentation for me because her description was excellent. Um, uh, in the time that I had, I wanted to focus on a couple of areas that uh, corporate clients actually have now started to sort of flex their influence with their outside counsel and what was behind uh, those sort of moves. Uh, and, and it really comes from the confluence of a number of factors. First, the economic downturn. Uh, when uh, things turned in 2008, 2009, I think what you saw was that corporate law departments started realizing that they really needed to have greater Uh, sensitivity around cost, uh, making sure that they were getting the proper level of responsiveness from their outside counsel, uh, and even seeking to turn uh, corporate law departments, which had been viewed internally as cost centers, into profit centers to the extent that they could do so. You also had um, a, a proliferation of tools around technology that allowed uh, corporate law departments and clients to do exactly that. You know, previously the touch point from a technology standpoint in the uh, attorney client's space was just around e-billing software. Uh, But now you see clients wanting technology and technological tools to help them with project management, with case management, even with sort of predictive tools so they could see where the next sort of uh, influx of litigation risk is going to take place uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, and the third uh, factor, I think, is uh, sort of a greater sensitivity around, you know, what I'll call cultural issues. Um, uh, at, at, at the Minority Corporate Council Association, uh, we conduct surveys every year that tracks diversity and inclusion, uh, both in-house um, at the highest level, at the, the chief legal officer level. Uh, we've done surveys and reports uh, d- tracking demographic changes from uh, uh, around women and minorities uh, at the rank and file, uh, and also uh, annual surveys around diversity and inclusion at the law firm setting. There are distinct differences in the culture in corporate law departments 
uh, that allow for greater retention, greater advancement opportunities for a full range of lawyers in those departments that you don't see in law firms. And corporate law departments are becoming more uh, creative and, and emboldened about requiring of their firms the same sort of uh, cultural norms and collaborative work uh, environments that they see themselves. Now, obviously, you, you were at Walmart for uh, many years, one of the biggest corporations, biggest companies in this country, and now you know, you're still very much plugged into the corporate council scene. What would you say are maybe the top two or three things that they're really pushing for from their outside council? Is it lesser fees? Is it different, different ways to structure those fees? Or is it trying to innovate technologically or even you know, bigger things like changing the way lawyers are, their lawyers are compensated, how law firms even make those decisions? Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of those things. But you touched upon two of the really big ones. Uh, my friend Jeffrey Carr, who was the general counsel at FMC, uh, has written a lot about what he calls the death of the billable hour. Um, I, I won't go so far as to say that the billable hour is on its last legs, uh, but the dynamic has certainly changed around the way that corporate clients uh, expect their outside counsel uh, to charge them for the services that they provide. Uh, there is a greater proliferation of value-based billing arrangements. Clients are much more likely to expect performance-based billing arrangements to be a part of what they offer. Um, I was mentioning in, the, in my presentation, the Association of Corporate Counsel has a value challenge steering committee. It's a, a group of mostly general counsels. I served on it when I was at Walmart, who approached the issue of uh, alternative or value-based billing arrangements with a zeal that borders on the apostolic. I mean, they, you know, they really take this to heart, and they see a sea change coming wherein law firms will not just present um, the hourly rate as a means of uh, being compensated for the work that they do, but value-based billing arrangements that actually uh, has, has the law firm having some skin in the game. And in fact, you know, if there's some performance that falls short of the mark, uh, they may not necessarily be uh, rewarded. You also see, uh, and, and you, you mentioned compensation, which I think is, has been one of the sort of holy grails for the law firms, but a bigger picture view of that is that companies are more likely now to actually sort of look beneath the covers and get into what has been historically considered the business of the firm itself around compensation, around the utilization of lawyers at various uh, skill level, around uh, whether or not diversity and inclusion is important to that particular firm. When I was at Walmart, we even uh, changed our outside counsel guidelines to require that the, the firm actually provide origination credit to the relationship partners that we put in place. And a lot of firms pushed back on that and said, well, that's not your business, sure, you know. Right. But we saw it as a tool for ensuring, A, that there were, uh, frankly, greater diversity among the ranks of the relationship partners who were handling the work for Walmart, uh, and that there was greater levels of responsiveness from those lawyers and the lawyers who did work with them. I mean, the fact is, the coin of the realm in the law firm setting is who has the relationship with the client, who benefits financially from that relationship, and how portable that relationship is. Uh, and something like that actually helps ensure all of those things take place. And it's part and parcel of this whole concept of the client becoming more savvy about requiring from their outside counsel what they themselves want to see happen. 
Uh, Mr. West, uh, you know, we recently had the privilege of, uh, of interviewing uh, Casey Flaherty, who is working in conjunction with Andrew Perlman for, it's called the, uh, the Suffolk Flaherty Legal Technology Audit. And a lot of it has to do with the technology proficiencies of, and this is the general counsel reaching out, hiring, outsourcing, trying to find those firms that can provide the services that are lean and nimble, and that they have, I guess, a certain understanding of efficiencies within the delivery of legal services. Mm-hmm. And so one of the great things they talk about, it, it's almost like I'm talking with Casey Flaherty right now uh, a little bit, but uh, they talked about the client making these demands. And so it's it's sort of this rising tide expecting the law firms to come along with it. But another one of the things, and this is your point too that I want to talk about that uh, Casey Flaherty brings up in conjunction with uh, Andrew Perlman is turning your general counsel, your in-house department from a cost center to a profit center. And th- this, to me, you know, is is a very great concept because I do think there's a lot of areas where, you know, your legal department can really add to the bottom line. But, you know, for the sake of our listeners, I'd love to hear some of your examples of how sure. legal departments are doing that today. Well, one of my heroes is Tom Sager, who was a general counsel at DuPont, who uh, retired recently. And under Tom's leadership, DuPont created what they call their recoveries unit. Uh, what they realized is that there were, you know, you know, there was change beneath the cushions of the sofa that just was just going unclaimed every year. Uh, whether it's not aggressively enforcing indemnification agreements, whether it wasn't actually pursuing as plaintiffs, um, you know, violations of intellectual property that they saw out there. They were just not sort of actively doing these things. And they created this recoveries unit. And I think the first year may have recovered something like, uh, you know, a million and a half dollars, $1.5 million. And what they started doing was they realized, there's opportunities out there. And so they got their outside counsel involved and actually created a recoveries unit committee uh, whose goal every year was to decide opportunities, identify these opportunities where they can actually make recoveries and actually push them out. And, and uh, you know, I, I think at one point it was up to like $32 million a year and, in, 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 you know, found money. Wow. Uh, and if you look at companies uh, of larger scale, I actually learned about that because when I was at Walmart, I actually was on a, at an ABA uh, mid-year meeting. I was on a panel with Tom and asked him if I could come and sort of pick his brain about that because, you know, you look at a company like Walmart that's, you know, uh, approaching $500 billion in revenue, and you can only imagine how much you know, opportunity there is. But it, you don't have to be a DuPont. You don't have to be a Walmart. Almost all corporations now are expected with their law departments to have the mindset that they can, in fact, become less of a cost unit and more of a profit center. And and a lot of that has to do with the changing role of the corporate legal department and the general counsel. It used to be that GCs and the, and the, lawyer, the in-house lawyers were just there to tell the business people what they couldn't do. They're now considered business partners in the business of the enterprise. And, uh, you know, chief legal officers now have a seat at the table in the C-suite helping to formulate strategy and plan and execute on what's in the best interests of the business. And I think that changing role is starting to sort of pollinate in the way that uh, the corporate law department interacts with its outside counsel. That's definitely a shift in the paradigm, and I think it's very exciting. So 32 million, you could probably give some of that to Ms. Acer, right? 
That was Dupont. That was not me. <laughs> Let me find my card. <laughs> well, well, before we turn the microphones to uh, to Miss Eleanor Acer, I do have one more question for you, Mr. Sure. West. Uh, we have a show on our network called In-House Legal, and it's hosted by Randy Milch, who is the former GC for Verizon. And uh, what, he had a recent interview, and, a, and, and sorry, Randy, I'm blanking, I'm blanking the interview details, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but he talked about the power of diversity mm. and its importance in the general counsel role. And in it, and, it was, and I'm paraphrasing, he talked about you know, the, one of the greatest powers of diversity is to get a full range of ideas, right. to consider a problem through different eyes, to provide better solutions for more people. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you'd like to further on that or comment on that remark that, he came, that came from his show. Well, I, I'm always interested when people think about diversity and realize or fail to realize how important it is. I think everybody within the sound of my voice right now understands the importance of having a diverse financial portfolio, for example. That's a great way to put it. Well, That's a really great way to put yeah, it. Why is it that we don't see the value of diversifying our workforce? Uh, and the fact is, you know, we're sitting here in California, which I think is a canary in the coal mine of diversity and inclusion from a demographic standpoint for this country. We are as diverse now as we've ever been, and we are becoming even more diverse. Yet the Bureau of Labor Statistics report, most recent report, will tell you that the legal profession is the least diverse of all white collar professions. And why is that? And, and how is that? Alex Galetta, who was uh, one of the presenters on our panel today, he quoted uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, and, and, and a quote that Dr. King uh, is, often, is often attributed to him where he said, the arc of the moral universe may be steep, but it bends towards justice. Dr. King actually got that quote from Theodore Parker who was an abolitionist, who was a white male. Uh, and, the, and the fact is, until the ideas of diversity and inclusion gain greater currency in the C-suite, where you don't have as much standing diversity, and where the responsibility for implementing diversity and inclusion programs uh, is pollinated and gains currency throughout the leadership ranks, um, our profession is going to continue to lag, and it's only going to hurt the profession long term. Oh, that's great. I think it's a great way to put it. Senator Acer, it's uh, now your turn. Now your your speaking engagement was called "Legal Needs of Immigration." So uh, let's let's learn a little bit more about the finer points. Sure. So uh, my uh, short talk was about the legal needs of, of immigrants, um, and you know, first and foremost, huge need for legal representation. I talked a lot about the absolute dearth of funding um, from the federal government and other sources for representation, and that it leaves the population woefully underrepresented. So, for example, you've got about half the people who are in immigration court proceedings right now, which are adversarial proceedings navigating the courts without a lawyer. You've got um, children uh, navigating very complicated proceedings without counsel. Some recent statistics show that children who were not represented were 13 times uh, less likely to actually succeed in their cases than those who are actually represented. I'm imagining a toddler or I'm the parent of a 15-year-old. I can't see my 15-year-old navigating a court proceeding on her own, let alone showing up for it. So, you know, counsel makes a tremendous difference. Another huge hurdle facing uh, immigrants is language barriers. Um, most lawyers do not speak the same language as their as their clients um, in the in the immigration field, and you know law schools could do, be doing a lot more to encourage students to actually learn languages uh, to become fluent, particularly you know or give them options, give them credit even potentially um, if they're going to be practicing, uh, particularly in, in fields where they're going to be engaging with non English speakers. 
Uh, technology can also play a huge role in addressing the language barrier. You know, attorneys now um, you know, can use their iPhones to bring in someone who can translate uh, for a lawyer-client meeting if they don't have someone there themselves. But with all uses of technology also, when you're talking about immigrants, you've got a real challenge of also building trust and you know, the need for face-to-face -face co uh, contact uh, communication when you're dealing with issues of trauma, when you're dealing with uh, you know, very difficult and painful personal histories. One thing that uh, I was interested in is uh, I, mean, I was tweeting you know, during all the presentations and I was following what was being said and what other people were talking about. Mm -hmm. And one thing that kind of surprised me was just sort of even in a room full of lawyers, a lot of people were really surprised by some of the stats that you mm -hmm. presented. Like the I think it was 20 percent of uh, people in detention, uh, only 20 percent of, of, of immigrants in detention even get legal representation. That surprised a lot of people. Yeah. Some of the other statistics that you quoted were, were also pretty eye opening. I mean, do you think education is, is also an issue here? Because, I mean, you have a, you have people who are in the legal legal industry or people like me who cover it. But even we were kind of unaware of like the depth of this problem. Yeah, most people have no idea that 80% of immigrants in held in immigration detention don't have a lawyer. Um, you know, there's very few nonprofit lawyers in these areas. There's no government funding uh, for representation, uh, and people you know, are navigating really life and death type issues. Will they be returned to persecution? What's going to happen, um, Judge? Well, I was just going to ask uh, if this is correct or, or not, because I, I think a lot of people to this point about the need and the right to representation, I think a lot of people don't understand that even children in the federal immigration court are not entitled to a lawyer. I mean, it seems uh, it's, it's unheard of, really, I think, for, for us to think about a child having to go into a typical state court without representation. But in federal immigration court, as I understand it, children are not entitled to representation by a lawyer. Well, I mean, this is a lot of this is right now under litigation, you know, in terms of, you know, what does our Constitution call for? What does fairness and justice call for? And, you know, how, you know, civil and civil Gideon. But um, in terms of the immigration statute itself, it says there can be people have a right to, you know, basically get a lawyer, but it can't be at an expense to the government. Uh, so, you know, right now, though, there's been a, lot, a strong legal look at the fact uh, that you can actually save money by providing counsel uh, to immigrants in their proceedings. Uh, so there was a lawsuit, for example, that ruled where the judge ruled that people with mental health issues who are held in immigration detention need to be represented. Ultimately, that's going to save the government money. I mean, if you know, people you know, cannot navigate this system, children cannot navigate the system efficiently uh, without, without legal counsel. So, you know, I think we're starting to see a, a sea shift, really. You know, the children uh, and their dire plight, I think, has helped to spark greater awareness of the lack of counsel. Uh, we've seen some funding from um, the state of California, for example, t for representation only for unaccompanied children, not for the mothers and children. But, you know, we're starting to see a shift and, and more federal government money going there, too. Be interesting to see what Congress does, though, because already we've had a bill or two introduced trying to, um, you know, trying to shut the door on even the very limited representation funding that there's been so far. It's also my understanding that uh, we really have to pat the back of many, 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 many lawyers who have provided free legal services to these unaccompanied children in particular. And so uh, I think I just I would be remiss if I didn't highlight the contributions of lawyers around the country who have stepped up to get trained on immigration issues, even lawyers that don't normally practice in that area who have learned how to represent children. Um, one lawyer told me one time, you know, that um, she didn't know much 
In fact, she didn't know anything about immigration, but she was very confident that she could do a better job than a five-year-old in immigration court. And I think that highlights really the need for lawyers to understand the issues in these cases and to step up, as they have, to provide pro bono services. And so I really am uh, grateful to the lawyers in our community statewide and nationwide that have taken on this responsibility, and they deserve our thanks as a country. They really are unsung heroes, uh, and they should get um, much more acknowledgement. So thank you, Judge, for, for doing that. I mean, some of them really, you know, are literally flying across the country to provide pro bono representation. Then they get to these detention centers, and they face barriers in terms of even getting into the facility. They face long wait lines. They're not allowed to bring in food or lunch, or if they do, want, they have to go out to their car and eat it, and then, you know, will they be- get let back in again? It's ridiculous. <laughs> If someone's listening to this who might be interested, someone like me, for example, uh, in volunteering, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, so there's lots of ways to do that. Um, You can contact my organization, uh, Human Rights First. Uh, We uh, match volunteer lawyers with clients, uh, and we also refer back and forth to other organizations. The American Bar Association itself uh, has launched a working group to assist unaccompanied children, and that working group can also be be, um, contacted. Groups are really collaborating, working closely across the country. There's also a program called KIND. K-I-N-D, which uh, that believe the acronym is Kids in Need of Defense, and there are kind programs around the country. There's a big one, big effort in Seattle and other parts of the country, Chicago, I think, as well. So if you just Googled kind, you probably would find some information about that and certainly contacting Ms. Acer's program. We hope you enjoyed this first panel interview. Up next, we continue our focus on the client coverage with Judge Charles V. Harrington from Arizona Superior Court in Pima County, and Mr. Alex Galata, the executive director for the Bay Area Legal Aid. Here's Judge Harrington. So I'm from uh, Tucson, Arizona, and I'm on the Superior Court bench there. I'm the civil presiding judge, uh, which is partly administrative but primarily trial court work, and I obviously hear civil cases on this rotation. Great. Alex? Uh, I'm the executive director of Bay Area Legal Aid, which is the largest civil legal aid provider in the Bay Area of San Francisco. Uh, We serve probably 13,000 clients a year with some level of service. We employ about 70 lawyers, and so it's a big operation. Great. Fantastic. Well, Your Honor, I'm going to start with you. Uh, your, Your mini presentation was titled Customer Service and the Courts. Could you give us a general description of that? Well, the whole thing about customer service in the public sector is slightly different, has different motivations than it does in the private sector. Um, and But it's also really important, as I think I hope I pointed out, uh, how important customer service it is in the court system because of the wide variety of people we deal with but also the court system is dependent on, on the faith of the people that we serve. So it had to do with those kinds of things, way, ways we can make things a little bit easier from, for the users of the court, uh, hopefully a little less expensive, hopefully a little more efficient. That's some of the things that I was talking about. And finally, hopefully a little more understandable. So one of the things that uh, you talked about that um, just when I was covering from what people were talking about on Twitter and whatnot, was the uh, the North Canyon kiosk. Yes. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that and, and, and how that sort of allows people to get better customer service from the courts? Right. So without seeing it on a map, 
the northern half of Mojave County is separated from the southern half of Mojave County by the Grand Canyon. And so the only way to get there is to drive literally 320 miles from the northern side to the county seat. And they have placed so far a few kiosks, very few, in northern Arizona, in, uh, in northern Mojave County, North Canyon they call it, uh, they put them in DMV offices, Department of Motor Vehicle offices. And so somebody can go to these kiosks and they can talk directly to the clerk of the court. They can do things like pay their traffic fines. They can download forms and print them. They can fill out forms online and print those kinds of forms. Uh, right now it's available for some audio conferences with the court, whether you're a layperson or an attorney, and it's going to be expanded to ha allow video presentations for uh, right now probably certain types of hearings as opposed to like felony cases or something, but a lot of the routine hearings. So just talking about uh, the kiosk and how you describe it, are there going to be more of them set up throughout the state, or is it just you know in this in this one county because of the geographical divide that the Grand Canyon provides? Right now, the only people that have actually talked about it are the people in Mojave County, which is in the northeast corner. But I think, for example, the county that I'm in, Pima County, it is an immense county, immense. It goes almost all the way from the middle of the state of Arizona to the California border almost. And so I think that we are going to see more of it. They're going to work out some of the kinks, but we need to get moving on some of that as well. Well, Your Honor, you know, uh, lawyers and, and members of the community that you serve look up to you as uh, usually the final voice of the law. And as it applies to their lives, the social contract that we have and, and, the, and the immense body of laws that we have to follow to be a part of the society. And so one of the complaints I get from some of my civil clients is that sometimes when we go to the courts, you know, receiving justice or receiving the, uh, you know, a decision that, that ultimately resolves the dispute against the other party that we're having is the time, you know, these overbooked dockets and you wait months and months to resolve something and the expense for that goes up. And so I'm just wondering, what are some of the things that, uh, that judges around the country are doing to help uh, with, with reducing the pressure on the docket to get people in court to resolve their issues sooner? Well, first of all, the National Center of State Courts, as you may know, has come up with a lot of recommended time limits for cases. So, for example, and we've adopted some of those in Arizona. For example, on the civil bench, we have an aspirational goal, which we're coming very close to, that about, I think it's 93% of our caseload should be done within, uh, it's about a year and a half. And, and we're just about there. So that's one thing. The other thing is, it's really an accountability issue. We try to keep the judges accountable with respect to continuances. We try to keep the pressure on the attorneys with respect to continuances. And we try to move the cases along. And we've, we've actually adopted several rules over the course of the last year in Arizona, uh, many of which were uh, suggested and with the help of the National Center for State Courts to try to make these cases move along faster. Now, with that being said, in, in our county, we can set trials very quickly, surprisingly quick, quickly. And we've, we've somehow been able to work out a uh, a system that works pretty well to keep things moving along if everybody's willing to, to play ball. I guess in that vein, I was curious as to what kind of role does technology play in kind of putting pressure on 
lawyers, litigants to reduce those times? Or is it just a matter of, you know, everybody work harder, everybody make sure they keep their deadlines? You know, that's a good question. And I don't know that I have a specific answer for you. A lot of it really is people have the courts have to keep the pressures on the attorneys, the attorneys have to keep the pressure on themselves. I mean, we do have things that we're instituting and are now becoming mandatory in May, actually, like e-filing, like the federal courts have had for a lot of years. That, I think, is a more efficient way to do things, not only for the attorneys, but for us. We're going paperless very quickly in our county for the civil bench, and we will for the entire state. Whether or not that will have the desired outcome, we'll have to measure that, but hopefully that'll be one. But a lot of it is just monitoring what's happening with given cases and working on those. Oh, the, the airplane board yeah. is one thing. You, that's just a board that we have in, um, I'm kind of digressing here for a sec, but there was an airplane board we had that, you know, when you go to a, an airport, it has the boards with the arrivals and departures on it. Well, we've put those in our lobby to help people find their way around the courthouse. And so if your name is on a case, you go and your name will be on that board. It tells you exactly where to go, when to go. And, you know, a lawyers hopefully already know that. But we deal with a lot of self-represented litigants, especially in, in family, um, in probate, and, and civil. And, and so that's one possibility. It would be really interesting to link it to the schedules so that people would move up. They would see their estimated time when they might be called or their case might be called so everybody doesn't have to, like, stay at the cattle call. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, but yeah, they have trouble predicting when the trains are going to come, so. Uh, <laughs> well, Judge Harrington, before we uh, close and go to uh, Mr. Alex Galata, I wanted to ask you a question. We were talking, one of the innovations that keeps coming up in, in, in the interviews, the series of, a series of interviews that we're doing, is access to justice. And you just said that you see a lot of uh, people come before you uh, asking for a decision representing themselves. Uh, can you give our audience some idea of the percentage of people that are representing themselves as opposed to seeking counsel? Well, the, the worst bench for that is the family law bench. So in, in Pima County, 80% of all family law cases have at least one party that is representing themselves. And Is that atypical to other places in the country? That seems very high to me. I think it's pretty typical, sadly. Wow. Yeah. And it's, I, I don't have the exact statistics, but it's way over 50% of, of family law cases that everybody's self-represented. Civil, it's lower. Probate's pretty high. But family's the, really the problem child, so to speak. Okay. Okay. Well, that is a sobering note to uh, yeah. transition to, uh, to Mr. Alex Galata. So I guess we'll turn the microphones to you. Uh, you did a presentation uh, as part of this series of Focus on the Client mini presentations called Legal Aid Landscape. So could you give us the, the general explanation as to what it's about? And we'll get into the specifics. I would be more inclined to call it uh, the access to the civil justice system for people of limited and modest means, because I don't think it's just about legal aid. I really tried to talk about that whole complex of providers and systems that serve low income and folks of modest means. One of the points I wanted to make was that it's not just courts. Courts are part of the place where it happens, but it's administrative agencies. A huge amount of what our clients face happen in federal, state, and local you know, administrative 
agencies. Uh, there's an increasing push toward mandatory arbitration, particularly like in consumer contracts and stuff like that. And so although we need to do a better job with courts, we probably can't just focus on courts exclusively. Well, one thing I thought was interesting, and I think the judge talked about this in her opening statements, uh, was that the idea of how, you know, in a lot of households now, it's not just, they don't just have one legal problem, they have three or maybe even more. So for your clients and the people that you represent, how often is it just a cut and dry matter? You have one thing and one thing only, but then uh, as opposed to they have a lot of other collateral issues and legal issues that come up from uh, from one case. It's pretty common that people have, have multiple issues. Part of that is because I think most legal aid providers like Bay Legal have become more proactive in terms of like we do like a legal needs checkup, if you will, or at least make sure that if somebody's with us, we figure out are there other issues where we may be able to help because it's the crisis, it's the stress that sort of make people slip further into poverty. And if we can figure out a way to like solve one problem and there are other ancillary problems, they, you know, they just sort of breed each other if you don't if you don't knock them all out, if you have the opportunity to do that. And so I would say, I don't know for certain, but I would say a significant portion of our clients would have multiple cases. And part of that, or largely, that would be as a result of sort of legal screening and trying to identify, are there other issues we can help you with while you're here? Because connecting people to the resources is sometimes the biggest part of the trick. So kind of a legal triage when they come in uh, yeah. as, a, as a diagnosis, uh, you've got a legal problem and we want to get to the bottom of all your legal problems. Well, I think it goes to the first presentation we had, which really talked about how people don't even realize that what they're dealing with are legal problems. And so we just have some quick trigger questions that allow us to like go through and figure out, do they also have a housing problem? Or is the housing problem caused by an employment problem or a lack of income problem? And maybe there's a public benefits issue there or something else. And uh, most of these systems are related to each other. And so figuring out if, if there's a way to solve um, multiple problems is what's best for the family and it's it's just better work would you mind giving us some examples of those questions that that uh, bring out those issues well it's just you know if somebody let me step back one thing you know we, we're part of a medical legal partnership uh, one of the folks talked about you know putting yourself where the clients are and so we do um, cases for families that are coming through the, through the medical center because there are lots of poor people there there are lots of low-income people that come through the clinic the medical clinic and when we meet with them, they may present with the child has asthma, and that's because they have a housing issue. Uh, but when you start talking to them, you realize part of the reason they have the housing issue is because they're really in bad, unaffordable, they're, they're in really bad housing because they live in a really horrible neighborhood because they just don't have the income anymore because they lost their social security benefit or something else happened. And so the housing problem then may lead to like an income maintenance problem that you then can fix. Um, or vice versa, somebody may come in with an income problem and then you realize, well, do you have, you know, you ask a question, do you have enough money to pay your rent? We're not going to give somebody money to pay their rent, but if they're not going to have enough money to pay their rent, we need to be proactive and talk about how my, how, what the legal ramifications of that may be. So is that related to what, because you talked about having a single entry uh, system for uh, civil law. Is that related to what to what you were talking about, or is that something different? It, it's it's part of it, but the when I was talking about the fact, there just is no system, right? It's like there, are, you know, there 
there is a world of providers. There isn't very little regulation in terms of what they do. What they're able to do varies with the funding that they have. And so some places do employment law. Some other places don't do any employment law. And if you get to a place that doesn't do any employment law or understand any employment law and there's an employment problem, you might not get help. You know, we try, at least if it's something we can't do, to really make effective referrals. We have a process every year where we actually go through to the other providers and say, what are you really doing? And if we send something somebody to you, are you really going to be able to help them? So that's like one stage. But we could have a system where we actually could track who's doing what, and it could all be modulated you know, in a, in a computer scheduling program. And you could just say, where's the next employment slot that's near where this person lives? And we could use technology to like really connect people with the available services way more efficiently. Right now, people run around from one provider to another provider to another provider, and they really are caught in a, in a maze, and they don't really know how to get out. And those providers can help them maybe do more than fill out forms. They might actually have a lawyer to go to court with them, which is like the best solution, especially if it's a complex matter. And sometimes people just don't get to the right place. And creating a system where we can get everyone to the right place and give them the highest level of service that the system can afford and that they need, we want to do that. This next question I have, it's a two-part, it's for both of you. The first part, uh, it, it, Alex, you deal with people in the beginning of, of the legal process. You know, you're getting people in and you're helping them uh, work through their issues. And Your Honor, you're seeing people at the end. And, you know, the, the big theme of this is access to justice. And so my, my two-part question is this, is it getting worse? Is access to justice getting worse in our country today? Well, I can tell you on my experience, first of all, after the crash, there were so many cases uh, dealing with collecting debts. And first of all, the people who were being sued, they didn't have any money, obviously. They didn't know how to work things. And it's, it's really sad as a judge sometimes to have to sign all those judgments against people who we know they likely owe the money, but they can't even figure out how to fight it. That's one thing. That's gotten a little bit better with an improvement in the economy. But the other thing is, I guess I have to look at it from this point of view. Most of us that are in government, judges, whatever, most of us in the middle class could not hire an attorney. We couldn't afford an attorney. Just couldn't. I mean, as much as I've been a lawyer all my life, and I love lawyers, and I love the law, you and I would have to mortgage our house to pay for something that wasn't covered by our insurance. So access to justice is, it is a very serious matter that, yeah, it probably is getting worse. What do you think, Alex? I think it's gotten way more complex. And so in some ways that makes it worse. I think, I think it is likely to get much worse if we don't try and change the dynamic. Um, mainly, mainly what legal aid programs do has come from some governmental sources of one sort or another. And the trajectory on those kinds of supports seems to be not very favorable. Uh, and unless we, you know, there are new infusions of substantial amounts of money, it will get worse. It will get a lot worse because the system is getting more complicated and the resources are really stagnant. And so we need to figure out a way either to probably do both 
infuse more resources, but really to simplify the system. There are lots of things I'm not sure even should go to courts. I have wondered whether family law even, you know, belongs in a court. Like you send people to counselors and then to an arbitrator and you're done. I don't know. But, you know, it really makes me wonder whether, you know, we could do things differently. Are there ways that we could really streamline the way we resolve disputes and which dis disputes? Does every parking ticket have to go to something that results in a trial if you want to contest it? Isn't there a better isn't there a better way to do that? And we should we should start asking those questions. Okay, so here comes my second part. Now I heard two things. I heard money and I heard complexity and your uh, mutual responses. And so I guess my my second question is, I think you're both in agreement that it's getting worse or it has the potential to get worse. What's causing it? Your Honor, let's start with you. Well, that's a that's a sixty four thousand dollar question, isn't it? What is causing it? Part of it is the complexity. We are a country that is able to make a lot of laws and regulations, that's part of it. And I think just the the cost. Uh, it's hard for me to say. I can tell you, I've been on the bench for 15 years, and I look at some of the fees that I charged even 15, 16, 20 years ago and compare them to today, and they seem a lot higher today more than you would expect for inflation. So I'm not exactly sure what's causing that, whether it's complexity, whether it's what it is. I'm, I don't know the answer to that. And that's, I think, one of the things that this whole conference is trying to look at, at least in part, is wh how, can we, how can we think about some of those in a different way and figure them out? What do you think, Alex? I think I think it's not a system and that's the biggest problem, right? Okay. It's just it's a hodgepodge of services that have all been sort of crammed together into one complex and that that's the that's the biggest reason that we aren't more efficient. If we were building a justice system from scratch today, I can guarantee you it would not look a stitch like what we actually have. And so the how do you reverse engineer that and say, "Okay, here's what it would look like if we built it today." Where are we at? What are the paths to get at least some segments to a different place? I think the other piece is like everyone fears the loss of control. We all in our work lives and our professional lives, we want control. Nobody wants somebody else calendaring for them. No one wants somebody else scheduling for them. Nobody wants somebody else doing intake for them and telling them, here's a client that you should help. Everybody wants to do that themselves. And that's what's wrong with the system. We really need to say, okay, I'm going to trust the judgment of others to be able to say, yeah, I can trust you to put something on my schedule next to Tuesday, and I'll respect that that's on my schedule next Tuesday. The more we can break down those barriers between institutions, the greater the likelihood is that we're going to be actually serve people better. I guess this question is for uh, for both of you as well. Um, uh, Judge, you talked about you know all the people who you know can't afford adequate legal representation, and obviously Alex, you're with uh, Legal Aid, and, and they provide free representation for uh, the indigent. But what about for the people who are maybe make too much money for you know, to qualify for free legal representation, but don't make enough to be able to afford an actual lawyer, what are some services or what are some things that they can do to get effective legal representation if they have to go before uh, before a judge for whatever reason? Well, if they don't have the money, it's hard to get effective legal representation. Unfortunately, there are pro bono lawyers that will do some, but generally those pro bono lawyers are not going to do it for somebody who can pay their bill generally speaking. So so what happens is we get a lot of self-represented litigants, and the courts have gone to trying to 
provide forms, better forms, as, as I talked about today. But if, if you don't have the money and you don't somehow qualify for a free legal service, I don't know how people do it. In fact, my experience is they don't. They try to fumble their way through court. They write me letters. They say, please, I know I owe the money, but I want to, uh, I've told them that I'd pay them $100 a month, and the credit card company says, no, you've breached your contract. We want a judgment. So I guess the answer to your question, I, I just don't see that they do get representation. From my point of view, I think that many of the innovations and changes that we're talking about that will benefit low-income people will benefit many of those folks of modest means, right? So if we make the system more streamlined, if we create a way where people can produce forms that are, are going to sort of meaningfully self-represent, those systems should be available to everyone. And so that makes the system fairer for all. I think the second thing is, is to the degree we're actually like holding systems accountable, and that was one of my other points, is that we have to have a, a, a mechanism lawyers to actually hold systems accountable. And if we're holding the systems accountable, that inures to everyone's benefit. And then on a more practical level, I know that there's a movement, the legal incubator movement, which is really looking at uh, bringing young lawyers, new lawyers into legal aid community to help them learn how to practice law, but have those people be targeted to folks that really are from that community and want to go back to their community and are willing to provide basically lower fee services. And so so it's like creating, if you will, a group of for-profit community lawyers that really, you know, aren't trying to get rich, just want to make a living and are willing to go back to their communities and give back. And I think that that's one way we might sort of start chipping away at it. This has been another edition of Special Reports. We hope you enjoyed this series of interviews. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.